Well, let's open our Bibles back to Matthew's gospel and Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is where we're going to spend our time. I took a big portion, uh, first hour, and so I assume I'm obligated to preach the same amount for second hour, verses 1 through 14. So we're hitting it with two handfuls of uh, text, but it really comes together with a kind of a harrowing, I could say, or bleak look at the end times. That's what Matthew 24 is about. What does it look like when the world's at its worst? If you're looking at the title, Winning the World at Its Worst, I'm trying to find a way to navigate a text where things are, it's like the ship is going down, you know, in this text. And it's not just talking about the United States of America, it's talking about the world. The nations are doing these things. There are end time signs that they, they show us the end is near. And they should evoke something within us. And I want to make the case that instead of being dour, um, being woe is me, being the proverbial chicken little that the sky is falling... In our election cycle, with candidates that will, with rhetoric, beat each other up. And on the other hand, instead of being the neutrality bubble, ah, la, 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 I don't care, I'm not listening, you know, it doesn't bother me, I don't care if the world goes away, you know, we have to find a Christian biblical balance for why we're here. We are here right now in this world, in this political arena, in a world that is going from bad to worse for a purpose. And that's not just to say it's getting worse and to feel bad about it till heaven. We got to do something for Christ while we're here. I remember the song in, I think it was 1986, 87. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. That was the REM song. Well, People don't feel fine um, right now. I mean, it's, it's serious and polarizing with the issues. It's increased pressure. And we need to answer how we're supposed to respond, not depressed, not angry, and not laissez-faire. We, we need a response. So let me read verses 1 through 14 with this in mind. This is what Jesus tells us to do when the world's at its worst. Verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will, be, that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines. And earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation 
and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this is the world at its worst. This is when things are getting cataclysmic up to the end. We can be kind of psyched out by a lot of things that are going on today, but this is on a world scale. This is when all of the world is countering Christ. And so I think we need to understand that there is a way that we are supposed to approach the world now that we will also approach the world then if we're still here at this time when things are on this scale. What are we supposed to do? Well, the call for, I think, the next couple chapters is to win the world, win the world at its worst. Seeing these warnings, these signs of the time, these things that are happening and are going to happen on more extreme levels as open doors to do what Jesus did and warn people about eternal hell and put Jesus as the Savior on display. It's hard to break the ice these days into evangelistic conversations outside of the church, outside of BSF, outside of your Bible study, outside of what you know, whatever parachurch or local church Bible study you're part of. Those are all good things outside of the Awana ministry, outside of Grace Christian School. How do you bridge the gap? Well, what you need to do is, I think, follow what Jesus is saying, and that is as things get worse, as things break down, as people follow wrong people, as people despair over cataclysmic events, be ready in your heart to open the gospel up to them and say, Jesus is the real Thing. He is the stability that I've been standing on the whole time. Come up and stand with me. This is what we can give people who say, well, where is that in the text? Well, look at verse 14. This is the train I want to jump on. And this, God, this, is, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. What gospel of the kingdom? Well, this is Jesus saving gospel. He is, he is bringing the kingdom and he's saying, follow me. And it's going to go to all the nations. What well, picks up, uh, you know, throughout Matthew 24, uh, verses 29 and 31, if you look there, of Matthew 24, it says, you know, tribulation in those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. That again is a... Christ is coming back. It's the end of the world. Jesus is the point. Look at verse 31. And it says, He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect, the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. So there's this call for people, the elect, to come to Christ. Verse 37, as were the days of 
Noah, so will be the, the coming of the Son of Man. It's basically putting the disciple in the end times in the exact same position that Noah was in. He was called to build the ark in light of a cataclysmic, world-destroying flood. And he did that as a life witness. He was a preacher. Uh, the Bible says in Second Peter that he preached with the Spirit of Christ to people. And he was... He was an evangelist during that time. He was hated. Many is a word that's repeated through these verses. Many go away. Many fall away. Many follow false teachers. Most people reject, but as bad things are happening, doors will open and you should be ready to give an answer to the hope that's inside of you, that's within you. And you're like Noah, just hitting the hammer against the ark saying, look, I'm preparing for an end in light of what's happening. In light of the chaos, the worse it gets, the better the evangelistic opportunity becomes. Look at verse 45. It says, Then the faithful, the wise servant, whom the master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time, blessed is the servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Uh, there's the idea of even Jesus didn't know the day or hour. Two men are standing in the field, one's left, one's taken. So where are you in that equation? You're the faithful servant who's living and giving the gospel in the end. Matthew 25 goes on um, to build this case. And um, it, just, it just keeps perpetuating. If you look at verses 12 and 13, verse 13, Watch therefore for you know neither the day or the hour. That's the warning of the evangelist. Verse 30, And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In the place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, again, the warning of the evangelist. Eternal things matter. Eternal life is in the balance. And then verse 46. If you've done it in the least of these, you've done it unto me. If you haven't, if you haven't been faithful, if you're not converted, verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So... I'm making the case or trying to from this context that Jesus modeled for us as you think about, as you talk about life events, world events, cataclysmic events, political events, and especially things as they're going badly, that these are the opportunities to intersect with Christ, to engage people with where is their heart in view of eternity. And so I'm saying in verses 1 to 14, these are five opportunities to win the world at its worst. Every warning is an opportunity to win people to Christ. The first warning is in verses 1 to 5, and it's false saviors. False saviors. These are people that are saying, look, anything but Jesus, anything but the Bible, anything but truth, anything but a narrow road, follow me, follow my way. This is everywhere in media. The false saviors are everywhere. Well, I'm going to build to that. Let me start back at verse one. This sets the context. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So what's happening here in Mark 13.1 gives a little bit more precise context is you have some disciples that are coming up to Jesus 
right after Jesus has been on the temple steps. About a month or so ago, or maybe six weeks ago, I was teaching on Matthew 23, the last, the preceding chapter, which is the context for this, where Jesus was basically raining down a spiritual route on the Pharisees, on false religion, on externalism. In Matthew 23, it's the seven woes to the Pharisees. He's basically saying, look, if you're trusting in externalism, like cleaning the cup on the outside when, you've, when you're cruddy on the inside, or you're like the white sepulcher tomb, whitewashed tomb on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones, that's the kind of religion that darkens the heart and sends people to hell. And so Jesus had nothing to do with that, and he was repudiating it. The last verses in Matthew 23 is his lament over Jerusalem, where he says, I would have gathered you if you would have come. Like a mother hen, I would have gathered my chicks, but you just would not come to me. So he's saying all of that, and just like us at church, myself included, you look at the word of God, you see what kind of person you are, you hear the message of Christ, you're reoriented in your thinking, and then you leave, and you kind of forget what just happened. That's why we have to keep coming back to church. Well, the disciple here, this, the disciples as a group, according to Matthew, but Mark 13 says that someone was daydreaming during Jesus' sermon. It says, as he came out of the temple, Mark 13, 1, one of his disciples said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I mean, this, Jesus had just cleansed the temple two and a half days ago. He had just beat it up, you know, upended it, pushed people out and said, this is not a house of prayer. It should be a house of prayer. It should be dignified for that. What are you, what are you thinking? He's been talking He's been saying, you're, you're all about an external facade when there's death on the inside. And he ultimately says, these stones are all going to be upended. This is talking about the fact that at AD 70, there would be a, an emperor, Titus, who would sack Israel's temple. The rocks, in, the, in that sense, would cry out against the false religion. Josephus said it was beautiful, that historian he said it encompassed 35 acres, white stones, gold plating, 165-foot columns. It was beautiful, flashing in the sunlight, unforgettably beautiful. So the disciples are just dazzled. It's like we're, they're, they're leaving New York City, looking back at the skyline, going, wow, aren't those buildings great? And so that was the sense, but Jesus is saying, all of that's going to be shattered. You care about the superficial. You care about externals. And I want you to care about what's going on inside the heart. I want you to care about people's eternal destinies. That's how we need to care. That's the lens through which you need to look at life and its political arena and things that are going on. Where are people's souls? Verse 3, this builds the context for where Jesus goes next. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. This is the mountain to the east of Jerusalem. It's where he is. It's where the glory of God in the Old Testament account of Ezekiel said that the glory of God left the tabernacle and it went and rested on the Mount of Olives. It's where Jesus has said and predicted in Zechariah 14.4 with precision that one day when he returns, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. It lies between Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west from by a very wide valley, so one half of the mount shall 
move northward, the other southward, so there's a dramatic event that's going to take place. But in the interim, where the glory of the Lord had left the temple and resided at Mount Olives, and Jesus is going to return as the Son of Man on that mountain and break it in two, in the interim, you have Jesus here preaching his final sermon in, as Matthew depicts it before he goes into narrative about him being incarcerated and taken to the cross. These are the last things he's saying. And the glory of the Lord is represented in Christ, seated as the teaching son of God, Messiah, rabbi, sitting there preaching about the end time, saying, this is your opportunity to bring up eternity to people as things get bad. When things are at their worst, this is your best opportunity to bring it to reality in light of eternal life. This is coming first through his warning against false saviors. The disciples say in verse 3, they went to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Jesus has just blown up their political dream. He's blown up the fact that Jesus was going to be their politics Messiah and overthrow Rome and set up the kingdom and create, you know, a Christ kingdom right now. And that wasn't Jesus' agenda. It wasn't his point at this point in his ministry. He'll come back and do that with the millennial kingdom, but that's not for now. So they're saying, okay, we get it. Uncle, we understand. You're not the political overthrow. You're not that leader. So when will that be? When will be the sign of your coming? We want this We want things to be right in our world. That's what we want. And Jesus is going, that's not the point either. Even when I come back, the point is, where are people going to be for eternity? That's the issue. That's what we need to be talking about. He doesn't even want to address this directly. Jesus answered, see that no one leads you astray. That's his answer. When am I going to come back? When when are you supposed to come back? When are you supposed to set up the kingdom? Well, Besides that, just be sure that people aren't led astray, beginning with yourself. The word see is blepete. It's, it's look up, heads up, get your head up, make sure you look around and don't be the word for led astray is planao where we get wandering planet. Don't be a wandering planet. False messiahs are so tricky. They usually don't claim deity status. Those are the people who are really the kind of wild cult leaders that most people don't follow. It's the subtle leader who says, look, this way is better than Jesus. It's the political leader. They promise political freedom. It's the business Messiah who says, hey, this is a better way to do business. This is a better way to make money. It's the psychological savior. It's the one that wants to ground you emotionally. It's these different agendas in the world that can draw you away like a wandering planet. Psychological, it's professional, it's financial. These are the agendas of the world that are the odd substitutes for Jesus. What's Jesus' agenda? His agenda is your soul being saved for eternity. This is a speck compared to all of eternity. And this is our opportunity to join this mission and message with Jesus so that other people won't be led astray. That'll be the first sign of the end. And there are plenty of saviors, um, supposed saviors who are out there. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. 
and they will lead many astray. They're going to be successful in their agenda. Second, the second sign that's an opportunity is catastrophic events. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is, the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and the earthquakes and earthquakes in the various places. Let's start with the man-made catastrophic events. That's what I'm calling it anyway. These are wars and the threat of war. Wars are catastrophic. They're, they're like altering in terms of history. They, they, they set the course for how we remember things. They define eras. People die. They are catastrophic. Yes, there's nobility in war. Yes, war is something that is the natural consequence of sin and people, you know, being greedy or, or wrong-headed. There's the reason for war in terms of national defense for protection. But ultimately, um, nobody really wants to be killed or, you know, or, or in a natural sense. But these are the things that happen, and we define eras by that. In the 20s, um, we remember you know, World War I and, and then World War II and then the Korean War, the Vietnam War. You can see it in your mind's eye, little pictures in your mind of eras and how people were and manners and customs and sacrifices that were being made. 2001, there was 9-11. Many of you remember where you were seated at a desk or at home when um, the Twin Towers were attacked. It spawned the war on terrorism in the Middle East. Um, we think about, you know, before that, Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Remember Saddam Hussein, all of that dynamic. Recently, Russian-Ukrainian war that's going on. And then Israel that's at war with Hamas, Hezbollah. Though these are dynamic events and as sad as they are, or as shocking as they are, even the nobility of war, all of that is a context not just to either celebrate war or repudiate it, but to say, I'm going to be unalarmed. Now, we're obviously sad for lost loved ones and the sacrifice, and we, we affirm the sacrifice of people. But Christ is saying in verse 6, see to it, again, blepete, get your head up and see that you're not alarmed. For this must take place. Why? Because the end is not yet. There's going to be a future war that Christ wages against all of his unrepentant enemies. He's coming with a two-edged sword. This is the apocalypse. This is the end of the age. All the wars are like birth pains. It's like the world is in labor looking to the ultimate war that will come when Jesus returns. The end is not yet. So no, bad, no matter how bad it is where nations cannibalize each other, we can be unalarmed, ready to witness and say, Christ is ultimately coming again. And he's going to war against the unrepentant. He's going to war against people who've not given their hearts yet to Jesus. War used to be curried about messages by messengers or by, you know, letters and people would hear about them, rumors of them, as is mentioned here. But ultimately, war now is on our phones. It's in our media feed where you can become just sort of 
bombarded with what's going on, but no matter the level of knowledge you have about what's going on on a geopolitical level or what might happen, we're to be unflapped. We're not to raise even leaders up in our own minds as little demigods that are going to determine the outcome of the world. Jesus is on the throne. His return is what matters. He is our Savior. He is our Sovereign, and He is our Lord. The big picture is trying to understand things in a greater context. Catastrophe happens, and yet we need to understand that the end is not yet. So there's a second kind of war, and that is, or a second kind of catastrophe. There's the man-made and then God-made, God-made. Now, I'm picking up on what insurance you know, adjusters call an act of God. This is when an event happens and your property is ripped up or whatever. But there are God-made dynamics that happen, like floods, tornadoes. This is what's mentioned here, famines, earthquakes, various places. Verse 7, there's tsunamis, there's massive storms, things that are lethal, things that rip people's lives apart, catastrophic events. This is when... The heart can open. It's, um, you know, there was uh, an event when Judy and I, we moved to Arkansas when we were young in our 20s, and uh, I was an associate pastor, and we showed up there. We'd never lived in the Mid-South before, and, you know, you think you're safe and sound, but then that, like within a week of being there, I think, we were in our little apartment, and suddenly these World War II, like, bullhorn sirens were going off. The sky turned green. We had a little tiny TV that was crackly with the newscaster saying, everybody seek shelter, be inside. And it was a tornado event that was happening over Little Rock, Arkansas, where 26 tornadoes that night touched down all around us. And, you know, I'm sitting there. I'm putting mattresses up against the walls and windows. They're telling us to do things. Judy's like... It's late. I'm just going to bed, you know, and we, we just, we made it. But the, the next day, buildings were just brought to rubble. I mean, there's the untouched where nothing, nothing happened and then other stuff, buildings that have been standing probably 50, 80 years were just in rubble. Um, about 15 years after that, there was a tornado that ripped through a person's home that was in our church that had a large number of kids. He had put The husband had put all of them inside the shelter. He was remaining outside with one, and they were ripped away. I mean, you just never know why things are happening. This is the why, Lord, moment. This is David going, I can't find you, God, anywhere. This is Job saying, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But he didn't understand what was going on in God's mind as he was proving Job's faith being real this side of heaven. The Joseph story is interesting, too. You think about it. He was maybe arrogantly talking about his dream, and his father was giving him, you know, the baby of the family favoritism, and ultimately his brothers sold him into slavery. He went into jail. He interpreted dreams. He got out of jail. He was the steward in Potiphar's home. He was accused, falsely accused of adultery, but ultimately made it out of prison and, and went to Um, be the viceroy second to command under Pharaoh. And you say, well, that was good. The Lord preserved his life and grew him through that. But there was a bigger picture that was going on that Joseph never even knew about. He was there to preserve 
um, the children of God from famine, he did find out about that, and he put that in context when he didn't execute his brothers for what they had done to him. But ultimately, when he died, there was a there was a Pharaoh that was put in power that didn't know Joseph, and the Israelites had moved there under Joseph for famine relief, and they grew in such a number and grew so powerful that the Egyptians got nervous, and they enslaved them. Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites, the future Israelites, and put them in slavery. And that was all a picture of what God was going to do to show what redemption looks like, sending Moses as a Jesus figure to deliver the children of Israel, sending the death angel over with protection of the blood splattered on the, on the doorpost to show that God is a savior and redeemed Israel, went free, and ultimately journeyed to the promised land. That's all a picture of the gospel. Joseph had no idea what part he was playing in that through what he went through. And I think that's the way the Lord works, even through these difficult-to-understand circumstances. This is God's megaphone to the world. This is our opportunity when grim reality strikes, when horrific events that are unexplainable. You say, well, is God in charge? Is he in charge of the wars? Is he in charge of cataclysmic events? Well, he's sovereign over those things, but he's not, he's not culpably responsible for the sin-cursed world that he's allowed to exist here. He's sovereign over it. He's unmistakably sovereign in functionality, but he's culpably innocent from what's wrong with the world. And this is our opportunity to explain it. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When things are painful, As one doctor put it, we obey pain. I mean, you react to pain in your life. And when circumstances, the wheels fall off, it's very difficult. That's when you, you're not manipulating that person, but you are absolutely saying, yes, Lord, I see that that person can hear the gospel. Something has opened up in that person's life, in their heart, where I can share Jesus with him or her. This is your opportunity when catastrophe strikes. Well, another sign outside of uh, false saviors, catastrophic events is Christian persecution. Look at this. Now, I don't want to miss the fact that verse 8, it says all these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is world contractions. And then verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Verse 9 is moving from impersonal events to very personal because people who persecute you might even be your own family members. Matthew 10, 21 uses the same word where Jesus says, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. How horrible is that? Families cannibalizing themselves over Christ. People's consciences riddled with guilt over their sin at a level where they, as Jesus says later, their hearts grow cold. They're like going into a deep freeze, even over their own family members. This is the 
reality of being a Christian. It's where Christianity turns illegal. Even modern Islamic regions don't look as aggressive as this in most cases. They do in some cases. But you're hated by all nations, not just hated in the U.S., not just hated if you move to Canada, say the wrong thing, or move to China or somewhere and do the wrong thing publicly, not in the Soviet Union. I mean, where, where things are illegal, but this is on a national level. There is nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. There's no safe nation anymore. This is how bad the world will get. And it brings people to an inevitable crossroads. Am I going to join and persecute the Christian or am I going to respond to the gospel? That's why this is an opportunity. When Christians are persecuted in a hardcore way, they're flying in the face of what the culture believes. It's undoing their God, which is trusting in themselves. These days, I was reading a book that is uh, written by the author of The Universe Next Door, James Sire. You might have heard him in Christian school circles, heard of him, but I plucked it off my shelf, and it was a book on how to read more slowly, and he's highlighting a humanities essay, in particular, a female scholar named Pamela McCordick, who, British-born American author, was attacking humanities, this humanities essay. She was going against that. She'd already undone God in the essay. She's saying, people don't believe in God anymore. Humanities is exalting people in their... um, saying they're the highest of, of, of intelligent life on earth. And so what she was arguing for was AI, and this is a book written in the 70s. And she was also arguing for artificial intelligence or extraterrestrial intelligence, so AI and aliens. <laughs> and you say, that's weird. Well, it's weird today. People talk that way today. And she was displacing human um, thinking and ingenuity and saying that's short-sighted, it's self-promoting, self, um, you know, it's self-exaltation, it's parochial, it's self-destructive. And she said, we need to expand our thinking. Kind of crazy. She says, Does not, um, shouldn't we admit that chimpanzees and dolphins, intelligent machines and extraterrestrial beings might have something of value to teach us? Might even be, we, they might even be enormously bored with all our antics. So that's crazy talk. Well, it's common talk now. And then she says in her conclusion, a good replacement for the center of the universe, that is not a parental deity who's going to fix everything up for us in the end, we are going to have to jettison the idea of human superiority and come to grips with the idea of complexity. It's not necessarily superiority anymore. That might is not necessarily right. Well, whatever happened to we're fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139, we're made in the image of God, we're we're a little lower than the angels in the creative order. You know, what is the son of man, as Hebrews 2, 6 through 8 talks about? People don't want God, and they don't want the image bearers to talk about God. Where did you come from? I came from God. I was created by God. I was created by a creator. This is crazy talk now in our society, not in the church, but out there. When you start talking about God as creator, I mean, think about, I, for my study for this evening on God and government, I'm going to talk about from the Declaration of Independence. I mean, we were created with, you know, these inalienable rights. We're all created equal, right? I mean, that statement assumes a creator, and that 
is the talk of evangelism. We need to talk about a creator, but when you talk about a creator, then there's accountability to that creator and people don't want to hear it. The only way to solve the conscience is Christ. Well, the last sign will be apostasy. You see this in verse 10. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets. This is their opportunity. They'll arise and lead many astray. So most people will follow these false prophets and they're falling away. They're stumbling over the message. They're, they're compromising. Compromise is happening now. You see hints of it in the church. You have mainline evangelical leaders who will um, jettison their theology for gross perversion. They'll fly under the radar of love and compassion rather than truth. But standing on truth is the most loving thing you can do. You want to do it graciously and lovingly always, but you don't want to compromise. People will change their theology to save friends and family. They shouldn't. Why? Because they want their lawlessness. Look at verse 12. And because lawlessness, this is the driver of all these things, will be increased. The love of, and, and the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness. What does that mean? It's kind of a Bible word, but it's a very, very um, active word in our culture. It's a very uh, apropos um, word for us to think in terms of the culture, I should say. Lawlessness. I don't, you don't own me. I, I don't play by your rules. Um, you, you really don't have any legal rights over me. I am an independent agent unto myself. I'm lawless. I'll just do whatever I want to do. And the government is what keeps the law and enforces the law to keep the world from going into anarchy. But people want lawlessness. And more and more of that is building and increasing in the end. And it's leading to hearts being cold where people are saying, look, I don't care about you. Or I'm going to send these Christians to prison because I want to be lawless. This spawns evangelism. Why? Because the ones who are the last man and woman standing, teenager, child standing for Christ, they will stand out as a shining light. They will bring the sword of the spirit with the truth. And it's a way to evangelize. When the heat turns up, families turning on each other, Who's the last man and woman standing for Christ? That's the witness in our world. You say, I don't want things to get bad. I don't want things to get worse. Well, Jesus is promising this arena in the end. And a way to apply this now is by witnessing. You say, well, where's the witnessing? Verse 14, the last sign is revival. It's where all the nations are coming to Christ. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Many reject, but many throughout the world are believing. It's proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's the gathering of every people group from all over the world to join in evangelism. Look, the ship is going down, but that's what turns up our evangelism. It's a man named John Harper who was on the Titanic as a witness for the Lord. He had gone to Moody Bible Church and done an evangelistic crusade there and was beloved. He was from Scotland. There was a room there named for him. And this is the story as to reason why. It says George Henry Cavell signed up to serve on the new ocean liner Titanic on her maiden voyage. On the evening of April 14, 1912, George was assigned to the coal bunker and was alone when the great ship hit the iceberg. He worked with a crew to secure the ship as best they could, but then was ordered by an officer to 
go into a lifeboat. One of the passengers aboard the Titanic was a man named John Harper, a Baptist pastor from Scotland who was on his way to Chicago to preach a series of revival meetings, his second trip to do so. He did not make it into a lifeboat. His wife also died on that trip. His daughter survived and um, lived and was part of church life in Scotland again, but he didn't make it in the lifeboat. He was one of the hundreds of people who drowned that night. Before he died, however, he spent his final moments urging people to come to Christ. Anytime someone drifted close to where he was, he would ask them, are you saved? George Henry Cavell replied from a lifeboat, no, to which Harper shouted above the noise and the words, Acts sixteen thirty one. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Harper drifted away. Later, Harper drifted back within sight of the lifeboat, and the frigid water once more, the dying Harper shouted the question, Are you saved? Once again, he received the answer, No. Harper repeated the words, Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, before he drifted away again. One report says Harper, knowing he could not survive long in the icy water, took off his life jacket and threw it to another person with the words, you need this more than I do. The frigid water of the North Atlantic took John Harper's life and his body was never recovered. But George put his faith in Jesus Christ. Later, he was rescued by lifeboats from the SS Carpathia. In Hamilton, Ontario, George Henry Cavell testified that he was John Harper's last convert. With his dying breaths, John Harper was urging people to come to Christ because he knew there wasn't much time. That was the last opportunity for many of them. It's dramatic, but it's a mindset to have as things get worse, as things happen. As the Titanic looks like it's going down, that's when you ask people, are you saved? Think of Paul and Silas. They were beaten in jail, first missionary journey. They're shackled. They're in the lowest of low. The earthquake happens. The doors fly open. People run out of their dungeon cell, and the Philippian jailer is there. He's getting ready to commit suicide. He pulls the sword to end himself. We know later that he has a family waiting for him at home. He looks at Paul and Silas and he says, what must I do to be saved? At that point, that's where you insert the gospel. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to get people in conversations about the gospel, but I'm saying that there is a clear opportunity where things open up and you say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He and his whole household were saved. When the ship's going down, this is our call to witness.